Well, hi back. My name is Lena Abijamra, and you are listening to the Living with Power Hope podcast. It is awesome to be with you. It's Thursday. That's how I know it's podcast day, and I am so glad to be introducing in a moment a person that I love. I know you're going to love. You've heard her here before. But before we get to the juice of the hour here today, just want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Hope podcast. This is a podcast where we bring biblical truth for everyday life and a podcast where we talk about everything from faith to culture and uh, enjoy it right now. We are in an amazing uh, few weeks where we're focused on uh, the topic that I wrote about in my book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. I hope by now most of you listening have bought the book. If not, you can get it on Amazon. More so, I hope that you're joining us on Thursday live on the Facebook community uh, setting where I've been discussing the book live with, with, you, with readers and it's been a blast. And so if you're not part of that, you are invited now love for you to come to that group. Just go to livingwithpower.org and click on the join our community at the top of the page. All right, that's a whole lot of words, but let's get to today's focus. I have on the interview uh, a fabulous person. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit about her. Karen Swallow Pryor is a PhD and a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, she, I, I read this that I thought was very fitting. She is uh, considered now evangelicalism's English professor. I don't know if you knew that about yourself, Karen, but I saw that. I did not. <laughs> I thought it was really fitting. And I, 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 I love your voice on Twitter. Of course, you've written multiple books. You're working on a new one now. Um, your most recent one, I believe, is on reading well, finding the good life through great books. It came out in 2018, but of course, you're a regular contributor all over Christianity Today, the Atlantic, and, and you have a regular spot now on Religion News Service website and, and, and uh, news venue, which uh, will be relevant to something we'll talk about in a minute that you wrote there recently. So how are you? You're busier than I am. So that's that's <laughs> a lot. I'm tired just listening to my description there. So right. yes. No, no, I'm, just, I'm always refreshed when I when I hear somebody who when I look at their bio go, how am I gonna fit it all in? And I go, okay, well this is this is good. But no, you um and you still make time for for this. And so I'm very grateful for you for that. But you did recently write an article that I actually used in introducing um, some thoughts on my book um, just a few weeks ago that was so timely. I don't know if you knew that you were giving me this gift, but you wrote that great article on the re- reconstruction of your bathroom. You remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> First of all, I love the bathroom. You did a fabulous job. Who was in the picture? Was that you in the before pictures, knocking down walls, or was that your husband? I just couldn't tell. Oh, no, no, no. Well, there was there were pictures on the website that they use stock photos, and then I posted pictures on my own social media. Um, so no, I just have so there was no one in, no one on the oh, on the article. Well, on your social media, I love the after, so it looked really <laughs> good. So congrats on that. But but the article is so so astute and so good, and and you got a little flack, I think, at one point because because you talked about how you know you you were talking authoritatively about the deconstruction of faith, and you gave an illustration of like redoing your bathroom, knocking down the walls, and then finding all this rot beneath it. Mm-hmm. But then you were critiqued because you mentioned that you yourself have not ever gone through that deconstruction. Maybe kind of review a little bit. What, what do you mean when you use the word deconstruction? Well, yeah, that that's a big and an important question because that's a word that is being used a lot these days. And it is one that sort of poorly defined because so many people use it in different ways. And um, and and so I, I linked to what I consider to be the most credible source there in my article. And and basically deconstruction can be used to to talk about in, in the in the context of faith to be talk talk about any kind of dismantling 
that we do of our previous assumptions. And so it can be, you know, we can find people who've abandoned the faith who use the word deconstruction. But I find people, a lot of my own friends who are very, you know, small o orthodox and, and committed to the Christian faith have had to dismantle wrong teaching or bad mm -hmm. teaching that they have been exposed to through the years. So, so deconstruction is really just, just, Re, you know, taking apart and re-examining the things that we once assumed, maybe because we were, those were the things that we were taught and we never knew there were any, there was never anything else, or they were just the things that, you know, we were indoctrinated with, or we just never asked questions about. So it's a pretty big term that tends to be used by people who've, who are either ex-evangelical or maybe even have deconverted, but it's one I've, and I used it deliberately because I have found some very faithful friends who have still had to go through this process of sort of dismantling the things that they used to assume were true because they were simply taught that way and never knew anything else. Yeah. So when people hear the term deconstruction now, do you automatically assume uh, or, or does a human who hears that word, I feel like generally people assume, oh, if you've deconstructed, you've left the faith, but that's not necessarily true. That That's right. But I think because it has been used mm -hmm. mainly by those who have left the faith, there is that implication. And that's actually partly why I use the word, because I know that it's a word that people who've had to go through that process in order to find a more healthy, truer faith, um, it's a word that they have found fits what the, the process that they've gone, gone through. I, so I think we just have to know that when someone uses the term deconstruction, we can't know what that word has uh, led to unless we know what it is that they actually deconstructed. Because there are some things, as, as my bathroom remodeling illustration shows, that must be deconstructed in order to be repaired. Um, and that's why I use that analogy. Yeah. So you can, and, and, and then there's another line where you can question things about your faith or, or can you not question even what you've been taught in your tradition without deconstructing? Like, where's the line between, I just really find that, you know, like, let's say you grew up in a legalistic background. That's my, I grew up in a fundamentalist background. And so you can look at things and be like, man, I don't think that's biblical. That was their opinion and sort of question it without actually deconstructing or is it always some kind of spectrum of that arc? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's where the word is still, you know, not defined. I, I, I've heard other people use different words like interrogate or dismantle, or there's another word um, that's escaping me now um, that, that's maybe not as harsh. And so that's why I said, I don't think I've gone through anything that I would call deconstruction. I'm constantly examining and re-examining and affirming and reaffirming, you know, my own beliefs, sort of checking in with myself, I guess, because I grew up in a Christian home and my beliefs haven't really changed that much over the years. So I'm always sort of checking in and trying to make sure my faith is is growing and vibrant and strong and that I'm not just complacent and assuming. Um, and so I just think that the the word can be helpful sometimes and maybe it's not helpful, but this is, you know, I'm a word person. I teach English and words are tools and we should not let them become obstacles. We should always, when people are using words, um, we really have to stop and say, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Because words are not an exact science and they have implications and connotations and sometimes people just use them erroneously. And so we really have to kind of get beneath the surface and say, what are you talking about? 
that's going on. And I think deconstruction is just one of those words I kind of wanted to reclaim, first of all, because it's a word that actually has a completely different meaning in the context of my field and literary studies. And it's also, again, one that I've heard faithful Orthodox believers use to describe the experience that they went through in in ridding themselves of what were faulty teachings. Well, another word that I think sort of is that same category is now the word, well, two words. One would be exvangelical, which really then also this other side of it, which is evangelical. Like when people use that term, I mean, it's like, it seems like it should be so obvious, but I mean, when people describe themselves as evangelical now, it also carries this weight of this like right wing, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Christian right, conservative, whatever you want, Trumpist, you know, it's like, it, you know, you, you, you become so like, I'm afraid of all these words now. Right, right. I mean, exvangelical is another one of those words, because when some people use it, they actually mean that they used to be an evangelical. And not only are they not that anymore, they're not even a Christian. It can mean that. Or it could mean, hey, you know, I used to call myself evangelical, but because of all this baggage, I'm not using that term anymore, even though I believe the same thing. So there's a whole range. Um, again, it's it's these are terms that arose in a context and they and that and they have their power in this particular historical moment that we're in. And that's why they're both helpful and limited. But they're actually if we get past them and we kind of again, look beneath the surface, we can find out what it is that people are really wrestling with and how those wrestlings reflect what's going on in the larger culture that we all really need to address. Well, how do you describe yourself? If someone said, well, what kind of Christian are you? Ah, that's a good question. So I am, you know, I, I, I generally, my, for most of my life have Uh, have described myself according to my denomination, which is Baptist and now Southern Baptist. Um, But I also do describe myself as an evangelical. I mean, evangelicalism is my uh, field of scholarly study. I did my dissertation um, on the period of the evangelical revival in the 18th century and 19th century in England. So I've studied evangelicalism. I did that because I was an evangelical and I still am an evangelical. It's a, it's a movement that's much older than 2016. Um, and so despite all of the current sort of connotations of the word, it has a long, complicated history, both good, bad, and ugly and um but i'm it describes me perfectly i i am an evangelical that's good well there's been some rottenness to go back to your analogy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and some (laughs) of the words that you just threw down the southern baptist the evangelicalism and and really even in your article you talked about some of the main reasons maybe before we get into some of the specifics of, of of some some of the things happening in today's evangelical culture but 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 leading to top two or three things that you see in your estimation that have led, so the top two or three rot areas, mm. I'm going to call them rot, is that what's beneath the, you know, the walls of a bathroom that you read renovating was the analogy. And so there, you listed in your article a number of, of, of areas that have led people to deconstruct. If you had to sum up even now without looking at a list, like what are the top two or three issues that have become problematic issues for ex-evangelicals and people mm. who are deconstructing? What would you sum it up to be? I would say that, I mean, I might even be able to sum it up in one, even though I didn't do this in the article. I think it's that we protect the brand Mm. more than the gospel. Um, We care about the institutional church and we more than Christ, who is the head of the church. 
Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I guess those would kind of be the two things, because if you think about the branding, sometimes even our our Christianity the, or our approach to Christianity or our, our tribe or our denomination is the brand. Yeah. And we want to protect that more than we want to protect um, the people that Jesus died for um, and the message, uh, the saving message of the gospel. So, and we, it's so, it's so, and I don't say that in an accusatory way because I actually am a person who believes in denominations and institutions and authority. And so I think those things are, I think those things in general, make us stronger and better. I mean, for example, I love the fact that we have government authorities that issue certificates of occupancy and, um, you know, and safety. Like, I love that we we can trust, we have these institutions that we can trust that the buildings and the roads that we use are safe and have been inspected. And I, so I think even when it comes to the church, you know, that, that institutions and denominations do make us stronger and healthier overall, but only when we are in service to the true mission. And I think we've just so we've just gotten everything upside down. And it's kind of easy to say, well, if we if if we let the brand go or if the if the institution is hurt, um, then that's going to hurt the name of Christ or hurt the gospel. Um, and we use that rationalization to get these things upside down. And I think that's what's happening across the board. Well, and it is nuanced, right? Because I mean you know, I'm, I'm kind of mentally running through some situations that have exploded in the last, you know, few <laughs> years that have been very public, and you know, some of which you've been living, you know, very much integrated lives in. And you know, one of the things I didn't mention, I mean, you left Liberty in 2019, so you were very close to some of the situations there. You run over by a bus in 2018, which constantly shows up in in any kind of search engine when you put in your name, uh, and that was in, sort of related to some of the controversy mm-hmm. happening at the Southern Baptist Convention back a few years ago that, of course, has continued with some of the political turmoil there, but it's almost like there's a sense among leaders and who, who get caught up in this branding, which I agree. I think I think your point is, is great about this wanting to protect brand more than the gospel, but it's almost like these leaders or Christians in general equate church to Jesus, which again, mm-hmm. maybe we can talk about that for a second, because even saying that, I feel like it, church is sort of Jesus, but it's not. And so mm. where do we get confused about sort of who Jesus is versus mm-hmm. who church is? Or by the way, there's the institution, which is a Christian institution. It's not Jesus. Right. But let's even narrow it down to church slash Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I think the church is in such crisis right now. Now, I say I say the American church, I, I you know, from all of that I've read, the church globally is gro- growing and thriving. But in America, the church is in crisis for a number of reasons. And so we're, we are, you know, and, and we are so many people are abandoning the church and abusing the church and hating the church. And that cannot be because, you know, we are we are the church. And if if our Lord Jesus loves the church, then we must love his bride. But that, so, but we have gotten it backwards because we are forgetting that Christ is the bridegroom, the head, and the church is the bride. And so often we are, you know, it's, it's so funny because in my conservative circles, especially Southern Baptist denominations, there's so much um, debate and controversy over um, the roles of women and men. Um, and as a complementarian denomination, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention 
teaches that that men have leadership roles that are not that women are not to have in the church and um, in uh, a marriage. And and I, I think that's biblical. I mean, there are lots of nuances to that. But the irony is that we are often in, there's a metaphor here, right? That the, and, and the real relationship, the real the, the, the literal thing that is that the church symbolizes is Jesus as head in the church as the bride. And so we ha- we are supposed to put Jesus, you know, let him be the head and the church be the bride. But um, but that's one of the things I think we're getting backwards is protecting that denomination, protecting that institution, protecting that that budget or that pastor or all of those things that are the church instead of letting Christ be the head. Well, and it's like we're living now in an area where we're being, we as Christians, as evangelicals are being busted for it in a sense, because here we've all, you know, there's been things like, so what some of the things that you mentioned in the article that have led to the deconstruction of people's face, I'll just list the list that you put, abuse, cover up of abuse, racial strife, lack of integrity, membership declines, partisans and div- divisions, divisions over disagreements about how extensive these divisions are, abusive <laughs> leaders, okay, negligent boards, you know, you, you make... You just brought up some of the issues with with women. You know the argument about the role of women in the church. I mean, you you get into all of these these just really divisive issues now, and you kind of go like like in a sense like there's these scandals that are unfolding. That in some ways you watch. I watch Twitter some days and the conversations, and I go, man, how have we been so quiet for so long? Why do you think are Christians blind? Okay, forget the leaders who might be trying to financially save their, you know, their jobs. I mean, I think leaders who have grown big platforms have a lot at stake. They have a lifestyle, they have a reputation. You can talk about the love for power and money and all of those things. But the average churchgoer and the average person who's following these leaders, where do we get blinded to Hmm. the degree where we can't even see it anymore? You know, that that really is the $250,000 question because it does seem like, you know, and, and you'll hear people say this over and over about how churches are places where abusers know they can go and get away with more than any other place. And, and whether it's, you know, sexual abuse or just abuse of power. And I think there's truth there. And, and it's because we are trusting people. And I think that is good. I mean, I think that, you know, we should... Um, be trusting and we should be charitable and we should be forgiving and all of those things. But those things become vices rather than virtues when they aren't counterbalanced by wisdom, discernment, accountability, and most of all, you know, sort of a proper understanding of what love is, because love is not just, you know, overlooking things and letting people go down wayward paths, but it really is about, um, about being truthful. You can't have true love apart from truth and you can't have love apart from accountability either and, Mm -hmm. and sort of, and a mutuality. So, um, so we have to be aware of our tendency as a people, which is, you know, to be trusting, loving, forgiving, and counterbalance those virtues with, opposing virtues so that we can be balanced and not stray into vice or, or worse. Well, and, and, and my, again, my observation is that for the average Christian watching stories unfold, 
man, the price that one pays for standing up to systems just doesn't seem worth it for the average Christian, right? I mean, so, I mean, let's pick on, like, let's say Beth Moore. She's been mm-hmm. in the news a lot. This is public stories, you know. I mean, she stands up to the system and she's no longer a Southern Baptist, you know, and, mm-hmm. and she puts up with it for years and years and years. And so you sort of kind of go like the message that's being sent to anybody who's, you know, going to a church trying to, you know, maybe maybe there are many people who are watching in the pews going, man, there's something wrong here. I smell a bad mm-hmm. smell. And in fact, that we can bring that closer to home for you. I mean, you spent some 20 years at Liberty, I think, if I did mm-hmm. the math right. I mean, I mean, clearly you you weren't blind to some of the stories about liberty even during those years so you know you have a choice then to make do you stand up and and wage a battle that might end you you know being loved by half of twitter hated by the other mm-hmm. and 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 or you can you know i mean is it worth the risk of, of and the cost of stepping up and saying something is that why people maybe fear is what keeps people from speaking up yeah that's you know it, it really is a hard question, and it's one I, I'm still, you know, sort of asking myself as I look back. I mean, for me, definitely there was a lot of trust um, and possibly too much trust. On the other hand, um, I think there were some things that changed pretty quickly. And uh, for for a lot of us, I think that is true, that maybe there were things under the surface, but um, for a long time, but we didn't, you know, we couldn't see them until relatively recently. Um, you know, th- th- these are kind of apocalyptic times and apocalypse it, it literally means a, 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 a revelation, a stripping away of the veil. So it's hard to see what's underneath, but it's also kind of a mercy because those things have been there. They've just been hidden. And now many of these things are no longer hidden. And so I think, you know, for me, the big takeaway in all of these recent things, including what we saw happen with Beth Moore and some things that I have um, been involved in, you know, we have to, I think it's just like the TSA says, you know, if you see something, say something. I think we tend to let things go too long before we speak up, if we speak up at all. And, and we just, we have to speak up earlier, let our concerns be known earlier, Um, be, you know, understand that we're all accountable to one another. I'm now, I always was this way, but I'm even more so now. If I, if something bothers me, I go to that person and I say, and I'm, and, and um, I don't mean in a, you know, something personally about them, but, you know, something with, you know, an institution or employer, if I have a question, I have a concern, I just go and I say it. And even if it's not, you know, my, all my answers aren't, my questions aren't answered right away. I know I've spoken up and I think that makes a difference. Speak up sooner rather than later. And if we all did that, then maybe these things wouldn't build so much. Do you think what's happening is now in our evangelical culture in particular, although in culture at large, I think this is true, but, but do you think there's been a greater sense that people can like, like, let's talk about abuse as an example, the hashtag. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely been a greater uh, I don't want to say comfort, but whatever, the, the, the sense that I can speak up more now, people are going to listen to me. And yet, in the very same breath, I mean, I mean, watching what happened, you know, with the Ravi Zacharias story, I mean, for years, mm-hmm. you know, we heard a person who was abused kind of say, hey, this is happening. And they were shut up and they were ridiculed. And eventually some vindication, but nowhere near what should have happened, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a bit about gaslighting as an example. Mm-hmm. What, can you define it maybe? Is there, you're an English professor. What is gaslighting? Well, that's a psychology term, but I have studied it in <laughs> the past couple of years. I mean, it's just basically sort of making someone question 
truth or question their experience, the truth of their experience um, by flipping things around on them. It comes from a classic film. I think that, I think it was called, I think it was called Gaslight. I'm not even sure if that was the title, but I've seen it. And where a man tries to make his wife go crazy by turning the light lamps off and on and doing other things and making, making the woman question her own perception, her own perception of reality not like just even emotional or mental but just like her physical senses Mm -hmm. um and so just by simply making someone question their experience and making them think that they're they're the crazy ones or they misunderstood it can be subtle or it can be dramatic um and that's where we really do have to be armed with the truth and we have to we have to have now more than ever a real sense of objective biblical truth to know what's right and what's wrong and to equip ourselves with that um so that we can confront wrong when it does happen in a truthful way um and when it comes to abusive situations, of course, that's that's difficult because abusers are often narcissists and they are very good at what they do. And so it's, again, objective truth has always been important, but in, in these kinds of situations, it's even, even more important um, to speak clearly, to keep records, um, and uh, to have a hold on, on you know, on, on what's happening so that we can know when something that is happening that should not be taking well, place. And sort of this idea that like you're, you're hitting something important here. I mean, you go back to what does the Bible say? Like, like we've, I think one of the, the biggest sort of the, from 2000 to let's say, you know, maybe even 1990 to 2010, 15 ish, this mega church celebrity pastor movement that I still think is around, but, but people are more aware of, of the, you know, the, the tendency to worship those leaders and, and sort of the, 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 what has happened as a result of that. And so, you know, there's this sense that what the leader says is what the Bible says. Like, it's almost like we, you know, I, I know I was a victim of a church like that, where, where if he mm-hmm. said it from the pulpit, like, you know, he'd say, you know, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. There was almost like this under, you know, nobody would say it out loud, but it was like, if, you know, the leader said it, I believe it, that settles it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is exactly like the thing that I'm talking about. Like, I think it takes a depth of spiritual maturity to, to, to be able to say, well, just because the leader says it doesn't mean make it true without becoming like overly suspicious. How, how do you train that sense of, of growing and knowing truth, truthfully, not just what a person, mm-hmm. whether it's Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or, or a, a, you know, a crook who stands up and, you know, whoever else that might, you know, have led cults and whatnot. I mean, how do, how do you learn right. to differentiate the truth? Are there any practical things that you might recommend for people to do? Well, the one that we've just sort of mentioned, especially in, in the church environment, is we we have to know the word of God ourselves so that we know whether that word of God is being faithfully presented by but, a pastor let me, or let me leader. Let push back a little here. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and I've mm-hmm. listened to these clips of like, you know, Mark Driscoll as an example. Again, he's a public you know, person, stories very public, and he uses the Bible repeatedly. I saw that happen in my old church environment. I see it happening all the time with leaders who go, well, here's what the Bible says, and 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 sort of making this pitch for their case using the word of God to where if you're a new believer, or even if you're a seasoned believer who's under a spell, you you sort of lose mm-hmm. that. It becomes hazy in your brain, which is yeah. probably what people are deconstructing. So how can you become fresh to where you can listen to the person saying and go, Hey, mm-hmm. that's not true. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Bible can be um, be abused and misused all the time, and even if it's being quoted. And so, so to me, knowing the Bible isn't just knowing passages in isolation, but it's also knowing the context for those passages and what their purpose is, and knowing when it applies, you know, to literally to us or when it's part of a history um, that's being described. And so that's really, again, going back to being an English professor, that is kind of a hermeneutical understanding to know not just what the Bible says, but how to interpret what it says and how to understand what it means in context that now that, you know, again, you mentioned new believers or immature believers. I know that's asking a lot, but I think there's also, um, you know, there's just, you know, for example, if we just take the the passage of how love is defined in First Corinthians, love is patient, is kind, and keeps no record of wrongs, all these things. Like the Bible says that. And so if we stack that definition, that biblical definition of love against the way an abusive leader is acting, we know that that leader is not biblical because he's not applying anything, whatever it might be in the Bible, um, in it's in t- within the context of the Bible in its entirety. Um, and I think we also have to, um, you know, we do have to rely on other people, uh, on other experiences. This is why the internet has, you know, and social media for all of the, all of the bad things they bring us, they are bringing a level of accountability. They're helping us to learn from each other as other people have gone through things. Um, now, again, we have to be discerning and choose good sources, but just not, allowing ourselves to have the kind of tunnel vision that puts our perspective entirely under the teaching or command of one person is just simple wisdom. And that's what we need as well. Well, and, and speaking of accountability, I mean, let's talk about boards for a second. You know, you were part Mm -hmm. of an institution that went through hell the last couple of years on a leadership Mm -hmm. level and you know, you're no longer there, but like, and, and looking at other churches and institutions and college, you know, whatever the levels, what, what, how much is the board to, to blame in the demise of a of a of a person and of a um, you know even I think about the Ravi Zacharias mess. I mean, where was the board? People ask that question all the time. Like, what happened to the board? Were they oblivious? Were they mm-hmm. you know? In our church, they fired people on the board who didn't agree with the central person, which should have been a trouble from the beginning, and eventually right. got on. So, is it really are, are are the boards at the mercy of that celebrity person? If the boards are at the mercy of the celebrity person, and certainly we both know that that happens, then a person who is of good uh, character and and right motivation should, if, if he can't change it, then he should get off that board yeah. and get out of that institution. Now, that's something that I have only learned about in the past couple of years. I had no idea how the Board of Liberty was organized. I knew that there were about 40 or 50 names that were listed every year on the board. I didn't know that the power, that those names are just decoration and that the actual decisions were made only by a group of eight or nine people who were all yes men. Those were things that I didn't know and have only learned learned recently and so and i've served on a number of boards so having served on good boards i really didn't even know that there were these other kinds of boards that existed and so that's something i think a lay person um going into an institution or organization that is a good thing to just ask about that i would not have known until a couple of years ago to ask how a board functions um and uh and 
you know, and to make decisions accordingly because, well, and, and, and to go back to your original question, I came to the point, I have come to the point actually where I think that the um, corruption and the fall of uh, Liberty's president, Jerry Falwell Jr., I think the board is as much responsible for that. They they were their brother's keeper. Yeah. And they were absent on the on, on the job. They did not do their their biblical, moral, ethical job. And I think they are more to blame than um the single leader. Well, and I you know, that that's a crazy situation. And it almost seems like a caricature, you know, an extreme hyperbole of every of anything that <laughs> go wrong and in some ways i mean it's been sort of quiet i'm curious to see what ends up happening at liberty in the next few years and even with 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 mr falwell jr but but it is riveting to hear these stories which are now being played out in in the commonplace i mean i'm listening to a podcast on that story just started it fascinating riveting and and you know it is it is been very helpful, I think, in some ways, because it, it is teaching us to sort of ask the right questions. I think that this public forum, as hard as it can be, the social media aspects mm -hmm. of, of our culture right now, is in fact helpful. Um, there are good board members, though. I mean, in fairness, like I think about what happened in my old church, and man, I think it took a while for us to catch on. But I mm -hmm. remember early on, a couple of the board members that slowly would trickle off and leave. And, and you know, at first, they're the ones who look, were made to look like they're mm -hmm. the bad apples. And eventually, it was, you know, it caught on. Like you, you can only clean up, you know, you can only fire so many board members before people in the <laughs> church and an organization start going, man, there's something wrong here. And I think it's also a cry for board members to to, to step it up. I want to be held accountable by my board. I mean, in my own organization. So, you know, these are these are tough things, but they're they're mature, you know, things that God uses to mature us. Moving mm -hmm. vain, just kind of want to you know, land on a couple of topics before we end here. One is um, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. What do you think of them? Should they be abolished from from institutions? Where are they mostly used now? Is it mostly in nonprofits or, in, or is educational institutions and churches? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience with NDAs. For, I've certainly seen them being used a lot. And, and um, I you know... I, they can be benign. They can be, you know, they can offer someone who's been let go pay to live on, which seems like a kindness. Um, and there are people, you know, who that's, that's what they need. Um, if it's that or nothing, they are going to sign the NDA. Um, but no, they certainly have been abused a great deal by churches and by nonprofits. And um, I don't know how, how they can, be, I don't know how they can be abolished. I, I do think, I do understand, you know, that, that um, I think that there are people who, you know, in the, in the case, especially in the case of like me too, where women have violated their NDAs um, and the court has, has honored those violations because the offenses were so egregious. So that might be a risk that those who unwittingly um, came under the power of an NDA might want to look into. Well, and I think sometimes NDAs remind me of prenups. Like, I mean, everybody knows they exist and they make sense on one hand. On the other, it's like, I don't know, man, if you need an NDA to take a job or a prenup to get married, like, you know, it just gets heavy. There's a lot of ways you can have that conversation, but but it does seem to be, um, NDAs seem to be protective of um, the institution as opposed they're, they're, to- they're, bri they're bribes. They're just bribes that, you know, and, and, but they're often given to people who have a little other choice. If they, if someone's losing their job and, and going to be without 
you know, it's hard to get a job in the, these days and they're going to be without a salary and they're saying, hey, we're going to pay your insurance and right. your salary for a year if you sign this. I mean, you can't blame someone for, no, um, for that, taking well, absolutely. that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I mean, even taking it a step further, I mean, it's funny because a lot of times it's not like the friends I've had who used to work at church who signed NDAs and were helped to them. I mean, the amount of money they got after leaving was so ridiculously low. Like it's almost an insult for people oh. who've already given their lives. Like I think about Liberty teachers. I know they're not getting paid a ton of money to teach at Liberty. I mean, so and other institutions like Christians are considered an honor to serve the Lord. And so there's a lot of psychological baggage that mm-hmm. you bring to the table. And I think that that is why people call these downfalls like spiritually abusive places. But I think a lot of the silence among staff members and in churches and 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 institutions, Christian institutions, is related to the fact that people have dedicated their lives to an atmosphere that have put them at the mercy for their livelihood on institutions that, you know, what are, what can they say? Mm-hmm. They, they don't have enough savings because you haven't been paying them anything. So they can't just walk away. They might not be able to find other jobs because they've been working in an environment that, right. you know, there's so many layers to it that creates even more tension, which is why to a certain degree, I think, what's happening right now in American evangelicalism is a sort of a gift for the church as painful as it is to go through. I think Mm -hmm. that that it will help eventually a couple of questions to wrap up one. Why does God let them get away with it for so long? (laughs) Them meaning those people. I mean, that's kind of, isn't that kind of like asking why does God, uh, allow suffering or evil that's a, that's a, that's a big question um and i don't have an answer to that but i i do think part of it is is again our own responsibility i think i think this this crisis that we're going through the you know the large crisis all the small crises um it's a good opportunity for us to learn and grow and say hey could i have done something more could i have spoken up sooner could i have spoken up more often should i have believed my own eyes and followed my own gut instinct um i've learned that a lot through through this and um and so i think the question we can ask is is what does god have for us to learn through this and how can we grow through this so that we can be more faithful and um serve better even when these others are not what do you see for the future of evangelicalism in the united states of america well as a student of history i i can't help but compare what we're going through right now this revelation and this sort of um reckoning uh, I can't help but compare it to ones we've seen throughout church history, like the one that brought about the evangelical revival in the early 18th century, like the one that brought about the Reformation in the 16th century. Um, you know, th- those are some pretty big events. And I don't know if this crisis that we're going through will prove to be as as big when historians look back on it but i also wouldn't be surprised so i think for those of us going through these difficult times right now we have to think not about ourselves and how hard it is for us although i mean i think about that a lot but think about what how what we are doing right now in the church and how our faithfulness and our strength and our courage and our conviction what that will birth for the next generations and how historians will look back and see how we helped to steer the church back on course. That's what my hope is. Amen. I, I actually believe that to be true. I, I agree with you. Hey, what are you working on right now? 
Well, I am working on my next book, which Lord willing will be out in 2023 called The Evangelical Imagination. Um, and I will be talking about just actually some of the things that we've been talking about, some of the some of the sort of the, the values and the concepts and ideas that undergird evangelicalism that we might not really think about, but that have helped shaped it for 300 years and how we can use that, those ideas to shape it toward a sort of better future. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to read that. Of course, you got pl- plenty of books that are already out there for people to to, to read. Uh, you you have a series you're doing on literature. Maybe tell people a little bit about that. You've got some. Um... Oh, yeah. That, um, so with B&H um, Publishing, which is the uh, publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, I have, uh, I'm working on a series, a six volume series of six classic works of literature that include beautifully bound editions of these works with my introductions and notes and discussion questions for readers. It's really like taking a course with me. Awesome. So I encourage anyone who loves classic literature or maybe doesn't yet love it and wants to get a, a handle on it to pick up one or more of those books and, um, you know, take a course with me in classic literature. That's pretty awesome. Well, I uh, listen, everybody I know probably already follows you, but if not, they can find you on Twitter at Karen Swallow Pryor. It's KS Pryor. Right. And then what about uh, any other venues you use on social media? Um, I have a website, KarenSwallowPryor.com, and I'm on Instagram at Karen Swallow Pryor. Well, how about it? I didn't know you. I, I think I need to start following you on Instagram. I don't know. Instagram is kind of my safe space. So no trolls, please. I post pictures of my dogs and my daily runs and books. So it's, you know, it's beautiful. You have beautiful, I will say, you have stunning pictures of the country on your runs. And it makes me almost want to move to Virginia. But uh, I, I, I'll i finish with this. Actually, it's funny. That reminds me, as beautiful as your area is, I had a person I picked up at a church once, a, a you know, pretty well-known person who had uh, spoken at a place. And then I was taking her to the airport, drove through my neighborhood without telling her it's my neighborhood. And she says, at one point, she looked up and looked at her and goes, man, this street is butt ugly. <laughs> I just laughing. I thought, well, it ain't Virginia. <laughs> so anyway, some of us get to live in freer more the country than others, but I am so grateful for this um, computer system that allows us to connect here. Thank you, Karen, for your time. It's always so fun to have you on this show. Thank you, Lena. So guys, if you're still here, I know you are because this has been a fun, fast-paced conversation on some pretty big topics. If you want to send us questions, send them to lena at livingwithpower.org. Remember again to join me on Thursday nights live where I'm going through the book chapter by chapter. Fractured Faith is my book. Just came out September 7th. Uh, The subtitle is Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. If you're in the midst of looking for God, man, you came to the right place. And if you are uh, in the process of wrestling through your own deconstruction, then again, I think you uh, were here for a reason today. So uh, we love you. Glad you're here. And I'll be back again next Thursday. Until then, uh, just uh, keep asking questions and uh, keep leaning into the Lord. He's got the answers for you. And he's closer than you think. I'll see you again next week.